Hey friends, I know the world is really scary right now, but it's going to get way bottom ten. Welcome to the Absolute State, a podcast from the investigative shit posters at Left Coast Right Watch. Each episode will bring you deep dives and analysis of politics and extremism from the absurdly dangerous to the dangerously absurd. I'm LCRW's Editor-in-Chief, Abner Hauke. And I'm LCRW's Senior Strategic Analyst, Michael Borman. On this episode, we're talking to investigative journalist Scott Morris from the Vallejo Sun about the case of two North Bay men who plotted to bomb the Democratic Party headquarters in Sacramento and are going to jail for a very long time. Scott will tell us about who they are and what their connections to local militias are. Then, we're unfortunately covering the Johnny Depp Amber Heard defamation trial. Do we have to? Yes. Yes, we... I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. And why the far right was so eager to see Depp win. We'll speak to my old First Amendment law professor, James Wheaton, about what the verdict could mean for free speech. Then we'll talk to Wagatwe Wanjiki, an anti-rape activist and writer who's going to tell us about the social fallout from the trial and its ramifications for abuse survivors. Lastly, we're bringing Haley from Arizona Right Wing Watch back on for our recurring segment, What the Fuck, Arizona? This week, she's telling us about uh, the 2,000 mules. But first... We'd like to wish everyone a happy Pride Month, and we at LCRW aren't the only ones ringing in the celebrations. Current First Lady Jill Biden is starting the month-long celebration of LGBTQ plus people off by unveiling a postage stamp commemorating former First Lady and currently rotting corpse Nancy Reagan. The Reagan administration is remembered, among other things, for their cruel apathy towards the AIDS crisis. Ronald Reagan didn't say the word AIDS until five years until his presidency, even as tens of thousands of people, many of them queer, died from the illness. Members of Reagan's administration also liked joking about AIDS at press conferences. In 1985, Nancy Reagan herself turned her back on her friend, actor Rock Hudson, as he lay dying of AIDS and asked her for help. Dr. Jill Biden unveiled the stamp in Nancy's honor on Monday. On January 6, 2021, like much of America, Ian Rogers and Jared Copeland were glued to their TVs. Rogers, a mechanic in Napa, and Copeland, a salesman who used to work for Rogers, were texting each other throughout the day. They'd been texting for months since President Donald Trump lost the election about who they wanted to attack. I say we stormed the Capitol armed on the 19th. Rogers wrote to Copeland, according to transcriptions of their conversations released by the California Highway Patrol. We gotta organize and do it. Mobilize the 3%. Copy, Copeland responded. Copeland would later tell Rogers that his wife was crying and rubbing his back as he watched Trump supporters storm the Capitol, trying to stop the counting of the ballots from the 2020 election. Please don't leave me, she told him. I don't know what I'd do without you. But Rogers and Copeland, believing the 2020 election was fraudulent, were convinced they may need to sacrifice their lives. I have five nieces and a nephew. That's enough for me to lay down my life for, Copeland said a day after the Capitol riots. Sad we'll need to die, but it probably will happen, Rogers said. I have the gear and the toys, so yeah. Mentally, yeah, I'm there, I believe, Copeland said. That's the start of Scott Morris's article, Time for War, Bro, How an Extreme Right-Wing Napa Mechanic Built an Arsenal. The story about how Ian Rogers, a mechanic from Napa, and Jared Copeland, his one-time employee, plotted to bomb and fire guns into the Democratic Party headquarters in Sacramento after Trump lost in 2020. I spoke to Scott this past week about what he uncovered. 
All right, I guess we're on. So we've got investigative reporter Scott Morris with us this week talking about this very disturbing case out of Vallejo and North Bay. I don't know, would you say Vallejo's North Bay? Vallejo's North Bay. Um, this guy, uh, the main guy in this was based in Napa, but his uh, his buddy was living in Vallejo. So it's kind of like, you know, it's all pretty North Bay based up there. So tell us about who these guys were, what they were trying to do, and what they got caught doing. Yeah, so um, Ian Rogers is a, he's a mechanic up in Napa. He's got a he had a shop up there, um, British Auto Repair of the Napa Valley. So he's like fixing all these uh, import cars, and he'd been up for a while, but he was also just like collecting tons of guns really big automatic guns and this had been going on for quite a while going out to ranges to like shoot some of these there's a video i found of him shooting an ak-47 that's automatic he had converted it out at twin sisters gun club in fairfield and so twin sisters kind of had connections to this three percenter group rogers was hanging around with those guys and had these radical views and eventually after Trump lost the election. Rogers and a former employee of his, Jared Copeland, kind of got in their heads that, you know, they're now in a war and they're just texting back and forth for months after the election about uh, they want to attack um, Democrats, they want to attack the governor, they want to attack Twitter, Facebook because they banned Trump. There was just this long string of targets they were talking about. Eventually, the FBI came in and searched Roger's business and his home. They found 49 guns when they did it. They found six pipe bombs. They found some Nazi memorabilia. And so he pleaded guilty to federal charges about conspiracy to commit a bombing and machine gun charges. His sentencing is set for September right now. When you were looking into this guy, did you really get a sense of how he got this idea in his head? And was he always just like, into this kind of fringe right-wing militia politics or you know that's not really clear to me exactly like when he tipped over but like you know there's indications that he'd been active in this for quite a while for one video showing him at twin sisters which was shut down by the county in like 2018 and so that that video, I'm not sure exactly when it was taken, but it was before that. And there was a while there that Twin Sisters was operating in this gray area and the county had ordered it to shut down. They weren't supposed to be using it at a gun club because they didn't really have permits to be doing that. And yet the neighbors would keep complaining about it. And, you know, there's information that the FBI received that actually membership in this particular three percenter group called three uh, percent united patriots was necessary to even be able to go there and shoot so that indicates that rogers was probably active in this group for a few years by the time the 2020 election rolls around so it, it does seem like there was definitely some escalation in 2020 but that he'd been hanging around with groups like this for quite a while Whenever I write about the three percenters, I always use this phrase, militia movement. Let's zoom in a bit more. How would you describe the three per- specific three percenter group? How did they behave? What did they talk about? What kind of ideas were in their heads? Three percent United Patriots or Three Up is actually um, a national group that started in Colorado a while ago. One of the things that they do is rogue border patrols in Arizona, and they get people that come from all over the place to go, to, to go down there and and you know just to look for people around the border um, haphazardly. California connection to that isn't necessarily clear to me. It might be as simple as you know one of the things that I think that Three Up tends to do is just kind of set up Facebook pages in different areas of the country and get people to sign up or was one of the things they did do when this stuff was still allowed on facebook one of the ways that rogers really plugged into this was that and um you know these guys were kind of talking about um how scared they were that biden was going to win the election or uh that um you know they they were like protesting up in sacramento and and they were worried about antifa coming around and, and messing with them there or something like that um they they swore though that they weren't a militia that that that's something that you know that they're like we're not actually a militia um which is a pretty common refrain among three percenters it's like though those other three percenters of militia we're not a militia yeah um, they all always say that twin sisters had 
connections to this three up too. I mean, that's a little bit different than the Facebook group, right? Because there's actually like people that were hanging around this gun club and organized, you know, were, were affiliated with this. And three up was, was the statewide group operating in California. And so there was, um, they were actually organized into different zones a lot like uh, they do it in California or Colorado. I'd like to talk a little bit about this guy Copeland. He was a Vallejo guy, right? Did Copeland kind of have his own ideas about how to do the kinds of violence they wanted to do, or was he just kind of following along? Copeland, he was Roger's employee. He's a younger guy. They became good friends, and they were texting a lot of back and forth. Now, if you listen to what Copeland said to like investigators or what his attorney might say, is that you know Ian was sort of the one that was like really driving the 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 plot and the anger here. And Ian, you know, to be fair, had a lot more of an arsenal. Um, he he was the one with the forty nine guns. He's the one with the pipe bombs. So there's something to that that Ian is the really the guy that was driving this. But you know, Copeland wasn't exactly saying no to any of these things too. When, you know, Roger says that he's gonna be the getaway driver and and they're gonna pull up on Democrats headquarters in Sacramento and he's gonna empty a clip from a machine gun into the building and toss in a pipe bomb. Um, Copeland's not like that's a really bad idea. Copeland says, yeah, that's, that sounds good. I, I like that. So, you know, I, I think that uh, um, it, it's hard for him to say that he has no responsibility in this because he, he's, he, you know, but to them or their defenses here that this is all, you know, just angry drunk guys talking that this is just blowing off steam and, and none of this was ever going to happen, which we'll never know because they got arrested, but they certainly had the tools to carry it out. That's kind of an incredible defense when you think about it, given what they had in their arsenals. How did that work out for them? Ian eventually ended up pleading guilty last week. He's done. I mean, he's going to get sentenced and go to prison. When Ian pleaded guilty, he was asked by the judge, do you think that you're guilty? Or do you think that the prosecution has the evidence to prove your guilt beyond a reasonable doubt? And he was kind of glib about it. And he said, probably. And and the judge says, I want to know, do you really think that the evidence kind of shows that you could, you know, that that, that you would be proven guilty at trial? And he says, well, I, I can see why a jury would believe the things the prosecution is saying. It was interesting to see him take that tone, and he was entering a guilty plea regardless, but uh, where I'd be really surprised if he kind of took the same approach would be when, when his sentencing comes around, because that's the time you've really got to like show remorse and take responsibility. The judge is going to, you know, he's, he's, he's facing a difference between, I think it's a um, seven and nine years if the judge is going to see that he's going to max out his sentence and so um I, yeah i would be surprised if ian is quite as um defiant when when the sentencing time comes around one last thing i kind of wanted to get into about these guys was um it was rogers who had the history of domestic violence right mm-hmm it seemed like this guy had a lot of anger against the women in his life. Could you uh, talk about that? Yeah. Um, he definitely did have a lot of anger, uh, towards the women in his life. And, you know, it's, he was married years ago to a woman who was actually helping his business, who, who seems to be the person who bothered to get his business actually legit in the state of California, who had like you know registered it with the Secretary of State. It doesn't seem like he had bothered to do that before that. Eventually they split, and you look back at his Facebook posts, and there's just there's things there's just like calling her like lazy and all these terrible names, and she's still like actually an officer at his business at this time that he's doing this, and and. To to the date still is like is is was actually testifying in court as to his business finances after he was arrested and all this and you know helping him out there and this is uh, but this is how he was talking to her in public before that um but with her you know there's no indication that he was ever actually violent with her at least not to the point that authorities became involved What, what ends up happening is you know after they split in early 2020 he got married again in the space of the next like, six months or so, police end up coming to his house twice. The first time because 
she calls the police and says that um, he's threatening to throw her out, that she has nowhere to go. Um, she was there on a visa. She didn't have any friends. Um, and so there was, and she was scared. And then again, after a neighbor witnessed and kind of push her down and drag her in, on the driveway, the police show up and talk to her. And the police report says that she's got a gash in her head and blood in her hair. But she says that he didn't push her, that he didn't he didn't hit her or anything. But they still arrest him, and he's taken to jail. But then the DA's office decides not to charge her for a lack of evidence there, even though they documented her injuries. They've got uh, the neighbor's account. Uh, you know, and they they just they said that they didn't think there was a sufficient evidence to prosecute it there. And this is this is interesting to me because this is August 2020. This is a few months before the election. If they had charged him, like if even if they had sought a restraining order, they could have. You know, they, they once the once the restraining order was in place, they could have gone and seized his weapons, and they would have found all of these machine guns and all of this illegal stuff that he had once they they had a search warrant under whatever restraining order or judicial order that they were able to get. And when the DA's office declined to prosecute this, they lost that opportunity. And then a tip comes in down the line that says that he's planning this kind of violence, but, but they could have had him right there. Not the first time I've heard a story like that. Probably won't be the last last thing i wanted to ask is how do you think this bodes for extremism locally in the north bay and beyond recent events have certainly pushed these factions a little more underground i think that the kind of increased awareness of what a three percenter is and what they're about people are a little less open about kind of displaying this stuff publicly and they can't organize on facebook anymore and they can't you know like recruit that way so that um kind of does take a little bit of uh, you know their ability to organize but just because they're not on facebook or you're not seeing it doesn't mean it's going away right this has been pretty enlightening i wanted to make sure you got a chance to plug your outlet as well so uh could you tell us where to find and support your work I published the Vallejo Sun along with my colleagues, Brian Kranz and John Glidden. So we're doing a lot of deep dive investigative work about stuff like this that's going on in the North Bay, but also just like, you know, regular city council coverage and things like that. Um, so that's at VallejoSun.com. You can sign up as a member there. We've got a podcast, too. You can find that anywhere there's uh, podcasts. Um, you know, we're, we're just called the Vallejo Sun podcast. And we're doing some really deep dive into policing issues up there. Probably have some uh, extremist episodes coming up, too. Well, I'm looking forward to that, and thank you so much for your time, and thanks for all the really excellent work you've all been doing. You've been knocking it out of the park. Right on. Thanks, Abner. I appreciate it. All right. You take care. You too, man. A Virginia jury found in favor of actor Johnny Depp in his defamation trial against his ex-wife, Amber Heard, this past week. Heard wrote a 2018 op-ed about being a public face for abuse survivors. She did not name Depp in the article, but Depp successfully argued it was about him and that it defamed him. He was awarded $10 million plus $5 million in punitive damages, while Heard won $2 million from Depp from a point in her countersuit. Most of our colleagues here at LCRW did not want to hear a single word about the trial. But we, and a lot of the internet, found ourselves inundated with often misogynistic tabloid coverage of it. This was in no small part to Ben Shapiro's The Daily Wire, which spent thousands promoting anti-Amber Heard stories on Facebook and Instagram. In the wake of the trial, Rolling Stone talked to people who work for survivor organizations. One interviewee said that, quote, she has already been contacted by hundreds of survivors wishing to retract public statements they have made in the press or pulling out of court cases against their abusers, unquote. Many such organizations were inundated with harassment and threats from Depp fans. The verdict is being predictably celebrated on the far right and emboldening them. Kyle Rittenhouse, who killed two protesters and maimed another during the George Floyd uprising and was acquitted of murder, said on Twitter that he'd soon have announcements about his own defamation cases. Quote, 
Johnny Depp trial is just fueling me. You can fight back against the lies in the media, and you should, he wrote. First, we'll get a sense of what the trial's verdict could mean for the First Amendment law with James Wheaton, founder of the First Amendment Project and my First Amendment law professor back when I was a student at Berkeley. Yeah, thanks for taking the time to talk to me. I basically just wanted your opinion about this case. I mean, it seems to me kind of disturbing that Heard didn't mention Depp by name in in this op-ed that Depp sued her over, and he won anyways. Yeah, I have a couple of reactions. First, a couple of disclaimers. I did not follow this case very closely. I did not watch any of the videos. I didn't follow it on a daily basis. I'm simply aware that it was out there. But I do know where it sits in the greater sweep of both libel law and also the Me Too and Time's Up movements. Second disclosure, um, I should let you know that I am part of the Time's Up Legal Defense Fund and have been funded by them on a couple of occasions to represent women who have brought charges of harassment, abuse, or violence against men. So I'm not exactly neutral on all this stuff. Um, All that being said, um, I kind of have two reactions. Um... And they're contradictory. One reaction is, yeah, this case really doesn't matter that much. And it matters a lot. Here's why I come to both of those conclusions. On on the legal side, um, this is a one-off. It's really surprising to me that Depp managed to get a jury verdict. And I have serious doubts that it will survive on appeal um, for three different reasons. First of all, he was not named in the op-ed that Ms. Hurd published a couple of years ago. His name did not appear. She did not refer to her husband or put any identifier in it at all. That is always the first element that somebody has to prove in a libel case. They have to prove that something identified them and then included a falsehood about them. He wasn't identified. She said she was a, a survivor of domestic abuse. It could have been any prior boyfriend uh, or even one after the marriage with uh, Mr. Depp ended. Uh, it could have been as a child. I mean, it could have been anywhere in her life. For him to name himself, that was a stretch. And I think it is, if I was on the Court of Appeal and got this, I would dismiss it immediately on that basis. It wasn't identified, and you can't self-identify. Second, he managed uh, to do the near impossible as a public figure, because he's a celebrity, uh, public figures is a broad category that includes celebrities, politicians, uh, cam- you know, candidates for office, uh, police, things like that. Um, they have a really, really high bar to get over to win a libel case. Under Supreme Court precedents, they have to show not only was something said about them that, or written about them that's false, they have to prove the person who wrote it knew it was false or had a pretty good suspicion it was false and didn't bother to check. Now, with regard to alleged things that happened to Ms. Hurd, she wasn't talking about anything else, only about what happened to her. That means the jury had to come to the conclusion that everything she said was a lie. Um, Right. It had to be by a really high burden of proof for lawyers, a clear and convincing proof, not just, you know, more likely than not. Um, That makes Mr. Depp, by the way, one of a handful of people who have been able to prove actual malice, as it's called, that is unknowing falsehood, by a public figure, um, against a public figure, um, in like 70 years. The cases are so rare, I have to go hunting for them to find some I can give my students when I teach my seminar uh, in journalism law. So it is very unlikely anyone else will be able to pull this off. Third, the verdicts, and there were two, (laughs) one for Depp against her, but also one for her against him or at least his lawyers. And they're absolutely self-canceling. There's no logical way that the jury could arrive at both of those. Because the one for Heard. Apparently, she relayed uh, an incident that had happened of violence of some sort, leaving her both battered and, and somewhat bruised. Um, I, I believe it involved the throwing of a phone at her or something. Her lawyers called it a hoax. 
In other words, they said that she had lied, that it was completely fabricated. It's not even staged. The jury found the guy who called it a hoax was lying and knew he was lying. In other words, it really happened. <laughs> right. If it really happened, then the verdict for Depp cannot possibly stand because she would have proved an incident of domestic violence. So I just don't see this being precedential in any way for another case. That being said, it is going to have a terrible chilling effect on women who are debating whether to come forward with what has happened to them in terms of domestic violence, abuse, or harassment. They will fear that they're going to get sued. That fear was already there. I have defended those cases more than once. Women who have gotten sued by their abusers or harassers for coming forward. The thing I want to reassure any listeners is we win those cases over and over and over again. We get the charges dismissed by the abuser. This one example, unfortunately, is going to get more, has gotten more publicity than every other example that I'm aware of and always will. And so it will seem like the paradigm and it's not. So that was a long speech. Sure. No, that that answered most of what I had to ask about um, my my main. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> no, you're going to get a little lecture, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, 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 in response to your uh, your initial inquiry, I did go back and do some reading, uh, both about this, but also about the wider issue. Um, going back a couple of years, the New York Times had a long piece about how libel suits are the new front in the war involving harassers and abusers uh, both ways um and there was an article in yesterday's new york times on the same subject um so i've been thinking about it a lot i was wondering about there was a i believe it was in texas a law that just got struck down the law was barring social media companies from discriminating on uh the basis of uh they called it viewpoint discrimination i think yes i did see that um it's got a somewhat tangled procedural history because it was if, if i have this correctly it was struck down by the trial court re reinstated they lifted the stay by the court of appeal and then the u.s supreme court in a 5-4 decision with a really interesting mix of justices said that it shouldn't go into effect um, so they reversed the court of appeal and affirmed the trial court. And this is all preliminary. While you know the case is waiting trial, can the law be enforced or not? Um, again, it's an issue I have thought a lot about for the last several years, actually, about disinformation and social media. But the Texas law wasn't about disinformation. It was simply about you can't take anybody off your platform because of what they have said, which is, oh, there's a word for that, insane. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> that's what terms of use are terms of use are specifically you may not do or say the following sorts of things on our platform and if you do we will remove you that is viewpoint discrimination that's exactly what that is we're taking you off because of what you said and the texas law seems to say that a private company not the government a private company cannot run its business as it chooses to and that's just again a technical legal term, insane. I don't, I don't see any way this law is eventually upheld. I was just thinking about that, and I was thinking about Ben Shapiro's whole propaganda outlet um, mm -hmm. boosted the trial coverage in its most sordid and misogynistic form. And I was wondering, maybe could you... What do you think the bigger picture of the far right's legal strategy, what do you think they want to happen legally? It's hard for me to opine about how it was covered or what the reactions have been, because, again, I have not followed this case closely, and I've deliberately stayed away from most media reports about anything other than what has occurred in the courtroom. I did see in the piece, though, in the Times yesterday that there has been some celebratory action, including by members of Congress, uh, members, I believe, of the Judiciary Committee, the Republican members of the Judiciary Committee, um, cheering the verdict. And, and what is the right wing trying to do? Good Lord, who knows? They live in a propaganda state now where there is no truth. There is only what is useful. So it's hard for me to know what they're thinking. I can tell you that Republican Party and, and the conservative movement has 
for 50 years been crying bias and left-wing bias and so forth by the media, a charge which their own people have admitted was fabricated simply in order to try to shut up the New York Times and the Washington Post during the Nixon years. Um, they didn't expect him to stop. They just wanted to try to get more of their spokespeople in. And to a certain extent, it worked. But it's the same playbook. They're just saying the same thing over and over again. And now it's the, the social media platforms instead of the network TV or the large newspapers. They have a liberal bias because they silence us. It, it's part of the right-wing playbook to play the martyr, to, to don the mantle of the victim who is being silenced and their voice is not being heard, which again is ludicrous, but it serves to, in some ways, make the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world maybe bend a little bit their way um, in order to prove they're not actually bending the other way, which they weren't in the first place. What did they want out of this? I, 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 I can only imagine that this verdict fits a narrative of the right wing uh, certain women that women should stay in their place that speaking up against a man goes against their ethos and they're just naturally offended by it there's one other effect that this verdict may have uh, if it's upheld on appeal and even if it's not and it's probably the most important of all the central lesson of time's up and the me too movements have been we believe them that when women come forward at risk to themselves to tell of harassment, abuse, domestic violence, the first lesson is we believe them. And the problem with a high-profile case like this that was exhaustively covered in the media is every every abuser, political opponents of women's uh, independence and rights is going to use this to say she's lying. You can't say these things that, that women don't lie about this. Look at Amber Heard. And they're going to use that and throw it in the face of every woman and every person who is advocating for a woman to get um, justice. Uh, and that's very frustrating. It only takes one to undo years and years of, uh, of hard work uh, to prove that, that women are, do not make these things up. It's a deeply troubling thing. We're at about 15 minutes, and I promised I, I wouldn't keep you here any longer than that. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, oh, my pleasure. My this pleasure. has been excellent. If any of the First Amendment issues you want to talk about, you know where to reach me anytime. All right. Um, and I guess uh, for our listeners, if you have anything you want to have them check out. <laughs> I guess I could give a plug for our nonprofit law firm, the First Amendment Project, uh, which represents people and they're sued for speaking out, as well as other matters uh, promoting individuals' right to exercise their First Amendment rights. We're uh, amendment, all one word, all spelled out, dot org. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been really, really valuable. Appreciate it. Next, we're going to get a big picture analysis of the social damage the bad actors around this trial have done from Wagatwe Wanjuki. Wagatwe is an award-winning anti-rape activist, and for my money, does some of the best analysis on abuse, abusers, and their manipulation tactics. Let me just start with, what was your impression of the way that this trial played out both um, in the court and in the court of public opinion? I was just really shocked about the way that the foundation of it was laid out years ago. So this is something that I had like found in my notes from like my daily notes in 2020. And I was like, there's some weird bot stuff that's happening that's defending Johnny Depp. And I already noticed from that point, because it was kind of already silencing survivor speech, because like, if we wanted to talk about it, because we didn't want to get harassed or have someone jump in, we would start, you know, censoring the name or being evasive. And I think that already kind of like, starts a little bit of a snowball effect, right? Where it's harder to like, have this, this ledger, basically, of the history of what people are saying from reputable people. And so we've seen how that harassment has bloomed. One of my former mutuals on TikTok, she actually ended up deleting her account, but she she's an expert in trauma, uh, trauma recovery, and she did a lot of work in domestic violence court, family court. So she worked with a lot of domestic violence survivors. So she gave her expert opinion about like, I see this pattern of abuse by Johnny Depp. Fans got a hold of it. 
they doxed her. They found her old job and tried to call and get her fired. Like all this weird. It was just like I was I was blown away as someone just watching her endure that. So there's that aspect, right, in terms of like experts and feminists and survivors not feeling comfortable enough to speak. Amber used a strategy that's commonly used by survivors where we don't explicitly label our abusers, right? And that has been really powerful. So even though there is the appeal that's going to happen, right, we're already seeing sort of this chilling effect where survivors are trying to retract old statements because they're just trying to protect themselves. So I think this is something that's going to be lasting for a while. This definitely feels like morally motivated network harassment, and I think that's a, it was coined, at least there's a paper that I read about it. It's a morally motivated network harassment as normative reinforcement um, by Alice Marwick. Basically, it's like a bunch of people, they have this justification, right? Amber's a liar. Amber's an abuser. So if you say anything that's like even neutral, you are supporting an abuser and therefore you deserve harassment. And so we're seeing a lot of survivors and experts being targeted by this. And we're also seeing the groundwork being laid for um, Evan Rachel Wood, where people are right, you know, we need to go after her, like this is that, she's claiming victim. And so this is, there's just a lot more at stake because even if the court case does not go in an abuser's favor, what they really wanted to do was get back at their victim, silence their speech, right? And get sort of that satisfaction. It's another form of control that a lot of abusers use. Maybe the liberal framing isn't as precise as what you have, but they kind of framed it as Amber Heard's going to, case is going to be instantly dismissed by a bunch of people because she's not a, quote, perfect victim. Could you weigh in on this idea of what is a perfect victim and mm-hmm. how does that get weaponized? Essentially, there's this anti-victimism. And so the most perfect victim is one that you don't know is a victim at all. Um, The second most perfect victim is a dead victim because they're not talking. Then the next one is the perfect victim who more or less doesn't really exist, right? The perfect victim is usually what we imagine, right? Um, Young, white, thin, cis, straight, upper class, middle class, maybe. It's a very small category. And then on top of that, right, it's not even just how you look, but also how you behave. You can never fight back. You can never raise your voice. You can never admit to doing anything wrong. You can never really stand up for yourself, right? You can't be traumatized. Basically, everything that's used to dismiss someone as like an imperfect victim are literally like trauma responses most of the time, if not all the time. So... When you like really peel it back and you see all the requirements for what a perfect victim is, it's literally a setup so no one can claim victimhood without being treated like crap. One thing I've been really disturbed by is this Vice article that we'll link to in the show notes about how um, the Daily Wire spent thousands of dollars boosting pro-Johnny Depp propaganda on Facebook and Instagram. And when our team was monitoring 4chan, for example, we just have to hide all of the threads that are about this trial because it got so annoying that we're like... You know it's bad when you get to that point. (laughs) I just wanted to get your impression of the right-wing framing of this trial and damage that it's caused and what you think their goal with this is. I think they are tapping into a lot of engagement and energy that's already there to hopefully bring more people into their harassment pipeline. Just thinking about the ways that they already have so much to benefit them in terms of like the Daily Wire, just because we know algorithms are biased. And so I think this is something we really need to be talking about in terms of lack of investment, in terms of like media and mobilizing engagement as people on the left and people who should hate Nazis. They did something similar during the Kavanaugh hearings with Christine Blasey Ford, and they were all anti-her. They were all also like around centering myths about domestic violence and rape culture for both of these. And I think that's something we really need to take a look at, especially for thinking about, okay, the tax are very much misogynistic. We know that toxic masculinity is one of the biggest signs of mass shooting and is also one of the pillars of like 
right-wing extremism here, you know, in the West. And so we also need to think about, like, this narrative helps contribute to their idea of masculinity always under threat. And, you know, that's the thing is that, like, the right is very, it's sort of like whiteness, that it's always under threat, right? They have, they have this strategic victimhood. It's almost like a fight over who gets to claim victimhood, making examples of different victims to be like, no, we're the true victims, because look what happened to Johnny Depp. See, Me Too did go too far. This is something we're going to see probably balloon into even more attacks. So we're already seeing, right? They're like, okay, let's start silencing speech. Let's start attacking people. Let's start targeting people. And who knows how that's going to escalate, unfortunately. Would it be fair to say that botnets and pylons, I'm I'm wondering if that's kind of the the legacy of Gamergate, like diffusing and spreading out onto the internet? I think Gamergate was very much a turning point. And it was also a lot of tactics that we had seen being used on like black women, specifically black feminists. So it's also just wild to see like, hey, look, y'all ignored what happened to us. And now it's blown into this whole thing where I think they know that it's really about controlling the narrative. And once you get it out there and you're able to sort of control it and then you have the other side more so reacting, there's also financial incentives to be on the side of the abuser. Right. Like we saw how a lot of people, their views on YouTube really went up. People were able to get new followings on TikTok. People were selling merch. It just attracts a lot of bad faith actors and people who are willing to just take advantage of anything because they have no values. Do you feel like there's anything that was different this time and hasn't been examined properly yet? This feels like the right really picking up on something that has been done through more traditional media. But now we're seeing how it's expanding, right, where they're able to target marginalized people. And I think that's what we really need to look out for. And I think it also calls back, you know, when white supremacy was very much obsessed with um, targeting black men and black communities over the guise of false allegations. And very often, even if they knew that Um, you know, the black person framed was innocent, white people would stand outside the courtroom and intimidate them until they got the result that they wanted. And I'm like, it just feels like the digital version of that. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I hadn't thought about it in those terms yet. Um, I should have. I mean, I guess there's nothing new under the sun, right? Unfortunately, I think that's the hardest thing about reading history. I'm like, wait, Someone said this how many decades ago and we're still going through this? It's, yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> You've been a supporter of our outlet for a long time and I, I just wanted to say we all really appreciate it and we all appreciate you and your work a lot Aww. here. Thank you. I appreciate your work. I was so glad to find y'all on Twitter and it's been a joy to follow and see how things grow and expand. So I'm super excited that y'all have a podcast and I get to be on it. Well, thank you. (laughs) Do you want to ask you, um, where's the best places for people to find your work and if there's anything else you'd like to direct folks attention towards i mean the best place is on twitter honestly but i have a website wagatwe.com w-a-g-a-t-w-e basically that's my username on all the social media platforms tiktok instagram and yeah and you can support me at patreon patreon.com essentially i just like to do a lot of stuff trying to use current events sometimes i do historical stuff i like to do analysis and basically what you heard me talk about is what i do well thank you so much again thanks for having me and that leads us right into what the fuck arizona with Haley from arizona right wing watch hello (laughs) what do you have for us this week have you guys ever heard of a movie called 2,000 Mules? Sounds exciting. Oh, God. It's Dinesh D'Souza's new movie. If you don't know who Dinesh D'Souza is, he kind of makes these, like, just disinformation movies. They're, they're presented as, like, documentaries, usually. But they're just nonsense. Like, the last one, I think it was called, like, America. Imagine a world without her. It claimed that Hitler was a leftist who was pro-LGBT. 
you know? Tight. Tight. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, um, he makes movies like that. And he makes a lot of similar books. I see him at the thrift store literally all the time. But he made a new movie that kind of centers around just election disinformation, because that's what every grifter is doing right now. So, what's his election conspiracy? 2,000 Mules basically claims that non-profit organizations worked with these (laughs) mules to ballot harvest for Biden. They were getting a bunch of ballots to put them in drop boxes to stuff them for Biden. That's the conspiracy of the movie. Please tell me no mules were actually harmed in the making of this. Um, possibly. I don't know. So they claim BLM and Antifa were largely hired as the mules, of course. It's extremely fake. There's a map that they claim in it is Georgia, and it's actually Russia. (laughs) Anyways, Arizona Senate Republicans held a hearing about the movie (laughs) because the Arizona GOP is pilled as fuck. So every time somebody puts out some piece of election disinformation, they eat it up and we have to hold a whole hearing about it. And then we have to, like, get bills introduced related to whatever bullshit that they were just fed. So, we had our 2,000 mules hearing this week. We have drop boxes where we can deliver ballots before the actual election. This movie is basically a big campaign to target drop boxes. So that's intentional. They want to get rid of drop boxes. But some of them definitely believe the shit that they're watching. One of the legislators that was watching the hearing, Nancy Bartow, was crying on the stand this at the hearing from the nothing that she was being presented. Just crying about, like, this is so horrible, this is happening, or... Yeah, because they, like, like, I can't believe that we've let this happen to our elections, you know? This massive mules campaign. <laughs> Yeah, so, um, Dinesh wasn't actually at the hearing. He has been here. He's been holding so many events here since that movie started. He actually held the premiere here. They were charging, um, $2,500. It was Mike Lindell, Carrie Lake, Mark Fincham, Paul Gosar, Leo Biasucci, Sonny Borelli. Those are all, like, legislators here. They were literally charging up to $2,500 a ticket to go see it at, like, a shitty AMC. You get to you get to talk to them. Oh, wow. And they keep holding them. Dinesh came here and held one with Charlie Kirk. They held one. Yeah. It's kind of like the party line in Arizona, but apparently, like, Dinesh got very, very, like, in a huge row with somebody at Fox News, and Fox isn't towing the line because they don't want to, like touch election fraud shit so um do you see any of that like playing out out around you or is everything just so like lockstep in arizona that you don't well we don't uh we don't deal with fox news out here the republicans we we use gateway pundit and right side broadcast network (laughs) they were literally at the uh hearing right side broadcasting network actually is the one who streamed it Um, they're like a far-right channel that basically just streams Trump events, and they've just streamed, like, all the Arizona hearings. They were streaming in the room for, like, an hour before the hearing actually started. It was on Tuesday, fresh off two massacres, and Senate Democrats were voting on gun reforms. Someone came into the 2000 Mules hearing and was like, the hearing's going to be late because the Democrats are trying to pass gun stuff. And the whole crowd gets mad. They're like, ugh! You know, like, you can hear it on the right side broadcast network. Like, everybody's incensed because their fucking fake bullshit hearing isn't happening because... The point of the hearing was to give up the NGOs 
who have been supplying the mules. So that was kind of what they were hyping, that they were going to name organizations. Because here in Arizona, we have alternative reality going on. Dinesh has been claiming raids have been going on in Yuma. Gateway Pundit even had an article. The people were arrested. The headline was, they've been singing like Tweety Birds, but nothing's been happening. That's all fake. The sheriff had to come out and be like, no. They didn't give up any nonprofit names at the hearing because there are no fucking nonprofits to give up. So they basically were like, we would like to give you the name of the nonprofits so your sheriffs could make those arrests, but we can't. And that was the hearing. We haven't passed the budget yet for the 2023. They're like 40 days over session and they're still doing this shit. They haven't passed a a, 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 financial, a fiscal budget, so the government's going to shut down here if they don't hop to and get their shit together. Maybe that's the objective. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of them really don't seem interested in voting this year. I think uh, some of the Republicans kind of kick themselves in the ass. With all the changes that they've attempted here in Arizona to the election system, None of the bills actually went through, so our primary election will be the exact same as the 2020 election. So a lot of Republicans are like, what the fuck? (laughs) I have to vote in an election that's just going to produce a fake result again? But I think a lot of the disinformation, too, is also targeting, in this case, the drop boxes. They just want to intimidate people away from using them, because at the end of the hearing... Um, Kelly Townsend, who's a far-right senator here, literally said, I want vigilantes to be putting cameras at these drop boxes, and if you see people using these drop boxes, you need to confront them. So, like, it's partially to also dissuade people just from voting, I think. I guess that's why we call the segment What the Fuck Arizona. Hell yeah. (laughs) Well, I guess we'll uh, leave it on that note for this week. Um, Thanks so much. And um, stay safe out there, I guess. A quick note on a case LCRW has been following closely for the last two years. Stephen Carrillo, the Boogaloo boy who killed a federal security officer in Oakland during one of the first nights of the 2020 George Floyd uprising, was sentenced last Friday to 41 years in prison. We'll have more in-depth coverage of Carrillo's sentencing next week. And that's it for this week's edition. One quick announcement. LCRW is co-sponsoring a Rock Against Racism show August 20th at the Bluebird in Reno. Cobra Skull's headline and the Fleshies are playing. Tickets are $15, and you can get them at the link in the show notes. The Absolute State and all Left Coast Right Watch journalism is supported by listeners and readers like you. If you'd like to set up a recurring donation to support our work, go to patreon.com slash lcrw or check out our pinned tweet at LCRW News to make one-time donations on PayPal, Cash App, Venmo, and all those other ones. We could sure use the help. Until next time.